So in addition to being part of our microbiomes and battling each other and causing pathogenesis, it turns out that bacteria can help a lot around the house. We're going to explore a little bit of this today on this episode of Short Stories of Bacteria. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Short Stories of Bacteria. I, as always, am your host, Dr. K. Thank you so much for tuning in again this week, if you are coming back, and thank you for tuning in for the first time, if this is your first time. Whilst you are here, uh, don't forget to hit that follow button wherever podcasts are distributed. Um, If you also share the podcast, that would also be super, super cool. Um, And as always, if if you want to keep up to date, with the podcast on Instagram. That would also be cool. You can follow me at science with Dr. K. That's science with Dr. Underscore K. There's a link that's found in the show notes of this episode. Now, um, while the last, well, the last couple of weeks have been really, really cool. Um, what we've been doing is we've been unpacking some of the things that bacteria do as they, you know, battle it out within the jungles of life. That being said, well, that's super, super cool. It turns out that another cool aspect of bacteria is how helpful they are in just the everyday stuff that you and I do around the house. Now, it may have occurred to you at this point, if you, especially if you've been listening to the podcast for a semi-decent amount of time, it may have occurred to you by this point that bacteria are in fact found all over the place. And because they're found all over the place, it is entirely possible there is a theoretical world um, where they play a big role in terms of the everyday things with which you interact. It's, it's, it's totally possible that they are absolutely ubiquitous in the way they're, 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 they mediate the way in which we interact with the world. Now, this actually turns out to be 100% true, and there are so many really cool ways that bacteria help us in our everyday lives. Um, in fact, it actually relates to a question that I got the other day from a listener who was asking about composting. They had heard that composting is super cool and super good and all these other super good things. Um, And he had heard that bacteria are actually super involved in good composting. But to what degree are bacteria involved in composting? Are there special types of bacteria that only live in composting areas? Um, Is there a way to make your composting better with the powers of science? Um, what, what, What is this whole deal about composting? Now, These are really, really awesome questions, and I will answer um, that last really big one first. Yes, absolutely, you can enhance your compost pile using the powers of science if, at this point, you've just been throwing all your organic matter into a pile in the backyard and covering it with a tarp and wondering why you don't have the most pristinely perfect compost in the world, then this is the podcast for you. There are a ton of ways that you can enhance and you can troubleshoot your composting. But in order to do that, we first need to know a wee bit more about composting, how it works, um, and the role that bacteria play in it. So let us first jump into jump into that. Um, the first question is, what exactly is composting? What is composting? Composting is the process of decomposing organic matter into a, a really rich, um, extremely complex mixture. That's what we would call compost. And this rich, complex mixture is super beneficial for the physical, chemical, biological aspects of soil, 
Okay, you can kind of think about compost as like a soil conditioner or a stats boost for an existing soil. It's a really, really great way of recycling organic matter that we could just as easily throw away with. It's a really cool way of battling climate change. It, uh, it reduces methane emissions, and it's a really neat way to just boost your existing gardening abilities, no matter what scale you're working on, whether or not you are in an urban garden where you're just in a really small area, or if you're, I don't know, if you have a whole bunch of raised beds outside. I don't know. I'm not much of a gardener, for those of you guys who do not know, or who could not tell from the from the way that I'm speaking about gardening overall. Now, whereas composting can seem, um, it can seem like just the natural tendency of stuff to break down, if you zoom in, if you zoom in on the goings-on of a thriving compost pile, there are actually a number of really cool microscopic organisms that are on the business end of any composting operation. And this, ladies and gentlemen, this is where the bacteria come in. See, um... Of the organisms that make up your compost pile, about 90% of those organisms are bacteria. Now, there are tons of different kinds of bacteria in this in this super complex network of bacteria within soil. Soil microbiomes are extraordinarily complicated, um, but many of them within this web of bacteria, many of them are within the actinobacteria neck of the woods, and we've talked about actinobacteria before. Um, they're pretty pretty much all over the place in nature. They're actually they're actually the ones that produce the dirt smell that you smell whenever you smell, you know, dirt. Um, so if you ever smell dirt and then you're like, oh, wow, that smells like dirt. It's because you're smelling the actinobacteria. Um, if you ever wanted to see actinobacteria, you know, in situ, then all you got to do is look at a functional compost pile. Actinobacteria, they make these, um, these long gray filaments that you can see usually once the compost pile is operating at maximum efficiency. So that's one kind that's worth mentioning here, the actinobacteria. In addition to actinobacteria, there are some other bacteria, most notable of which are the genus Thermus. The genus Thermus. Now, we're going to talk a little bit about them later because they're super, super important, um, but I'm just going to reference them for now. Now, like I said, there are gobs and gobs of other bacteria, but the ones that I want to mention now are the actinobacteria and then the thermus bacteria. In addition to those bacteria, the vast majority of the other organisms in compost are fungi, so like uh, the occasional mold, stuff like that. But the vast majority of organisms in compost are bacteria. Now, why, why would this be super helpful for things like plants? Well, it all goes back to how plants work and what they need in order to survive. See, plants, animals, you and I, we all, it turns out, we all need nitrogen in order to survive. We use nitrogen in order to build our amino acids, which we use to build proteins, so it's super, super important. But unfortunately, unfortunately, nitrogen in our atmosphere is found in a gas form that we can't, we can't very readily use. So there has to be some way for us to get nitrogen out of the atmosphere and into a form that we can use in our everyday lives. Now, the most key way that this happens is, as it turns out, is through bacteria. For example, there's a bacteria known as uh, rhizobium, really, really cool bacteria. And what it does is it makes these little tiny granules that you find on the roots of some plants. And these bacteria, what they'll do is they'll grab bits of nitrogen out of the atmosphere and they'll use it as a way to make energy. In addition to doing that, in addition to using this nitrogen as a way to make energy, they then spit that nitrogen out into a form that can be used by plants. So by having these bacteria around, the plants can readily get nitrogen from the environment into a form that is useful. 
Okay, so compost operates with a similar type of principle. A lot of the bacteria that are present in a stabilized form of compost, they produce a form of nitrogen that plants can consume. They can also produce a whole bunch of other key elements that are useful for plant growth. These would include things like phosphorus, things like magnesium. They can also produce a series of a bunch of CO2 as well, which is also used by plants. Now, all this to say that the presence of bacteria in a stabilized and active form of compost provides key elements that are readily available for plant growth, and thus they can be used as a way of kickstarting a garden. Now, having, also, having said all of that, it should become pretty apparent at this point that if you want to have a compost that is really strong and really helpful for your plants, you need to be treating the bacteria right in your compost pile. Okay? You need to treat your bacteria right. You need to treat your bacteria right in pretty much any type of pile. It could be you or just your compost, however you want to slice it. Um, now, while bacteria are a tough batch of cookies, it's really important to treat them well if you want them producing those elements that I mentioned that your plant wants. So how do you go about doing that? In order to best answer this, what we got to do is we got to take a real quick look at the timeline of a compost pile. How long does it take to get a compost pile up and running? Is it, you know, just as long as it takes to throw a couple of banana peels and a tea bag on the ground? No, it, it turns out that there are actually three different phases to the life of a compost pile. And those three phases are distinguished from each other in a large part by the bacterial composition of that compost. Okay? So let's break down these phases. The first phase is called the mesophilic era. Uh, sounds like a time of dinosaurs. Um, as it turns out, at, during this mesophilic era, there are a lot of those actinobacteria that I just mentioned a few minutes ago. Um, but as always, there are obviously way more than just this kind. This is really early in the life of the compost pile, and there's a lot of compounds, soluble compounds like sugar, that are very readily available. So fast-acting bacteria, they jump right in there and they start breaking everything down. This produces two things. It produces CO2, and it produces heat because of the rapidity and the, um, the amount of those reactions. CO2, um, if just kind of left to itself, it can impact the pH of the soil unless it's turned over a little bit. But more importantly, more importantly even than the pH at this point, is the change in temperature. If you have a whole bunch of these bacteria all eating this feast of sugar in the soil, the temperature of the compost pile starts to go up from a room temperature about 25 degrees centigrade to about 40 to 50 degrees centigrade, anywhere from 100 to approximately 120 degrees Fahrenheit. Once this happens, then the bacteria in the mesophilic era, they start to get a little bit nervous and they either leave the compost pile or they just die out. And it's at this time, once these bacteria leave, that the next era, also known as the thermophilic era, starts. The thermophilic era, it references this high temperature period of the compost pile. Um, when the heat of those chemical reactions in the mesophilic era increased the temperature of the pile to that approximate 50 degrees C. At this temperature, while many actinobacteria can't really cut it in this environment, the genus Thermus, the ones that I mentioned a minute ago, it handles that environment just fine. And so they start just growing like gangbusters, right? It's at this point that the insoluble sugars like cellulose and other lipids and proteins, they're getting noshed on. And unless the pile is aerated regularly, the temperature can still rise because the thermos bacteria are just eating and eating and eating. Okay. Now, the downside of this is that unless you turn that pile, or I guess some different piles can do this automatically, um, unless you 
modulate that temperature, unless you make sure that temperature doesn't get too high, um, those thermos bacteria, they can also die. If you get north of, say, 60, 65 degrees centigrade, right, then you can then you can actually kill the thermos bacteria. But in general, assuming that the pile is aerated and it's held in this temperature of approximately 50 degrees Celsius, then the thermos bacteria do just fine until all of those high-energy, insoluble foods run out. Now, once the high-energy foods run out, these like fats and insoluble sugars, then the compost enters its third and final era. That'd be the mesophilic era reborn. That's what I shall call it. Here, the temperature drops, and the mesophilic bacteria come back into their glory. All the thermos bacteria have gone at this point, and then the actinobacteria have returned. Now, at this point, there's not quite so much food around, so it's not exactly as much of a banquet as it was before, um, so you're not going to really be increasing the temperature anymore. Instead, what it does is it maintains this pretty this pretty consistent temperature at approximately 20, 25 degrees C. Um, that'd be like the upper 60s, lower 70s, stuff like that. And it's at this point, once it's in the mesophilic era reborn, that it's ready to go for use in the soil. Okay? Now, this whole process, it actually can take different amounts of time depending on the amount of material you have when you're starting, the ratios, which we'll talk about in a second, and a bunch of other environmental factors. But in general, the first phase, the mesophilic era, lasts a couple of days. And then the second phase, the uh, thermophilic era, it lasts about a week or so, but that really can vary. It can vary from like a couple of days to multiple months. And then the final phase, the mesophilic era reborn, can last for months as well. So just make sure to plan that in when you're planting your garden. Now, I mentioned a second ago about ratios. What is that in reference to? Well, um, while mesophilic bacteria aren't particularly picky about what they eat, if you want to promote decomposition of your pile, again, that's during the mesophilic era reborn, if you want to promote decomposition of your pile, and by transference to give your plants some delightful sources of nitrogen and those other elements, you need to have two key ingredients in your, par- in your pile. Number one, carbon, and number two, nitrogen. You're going to find carbon in things like sugars, cardboard, leaves, etc. You'll find nitrogen in things like manure, vegetables, the sky, things like this. Now, what's more is that you can't just throw all these things together willy-nilly. You can't just grab a cardboard box, stuff it with some leaves and an apple core, and then call it good and assume that you're composting. There are particular ratios of carbon and nitrogen that help the bacteria to compose the material in an effective manner. Okay? In fact, according to many within the composting scientific community, the proper ratio of carbon to nitrogen in your compost pile should clock in anywhere from 20 to 1 to 30 to 1. If you have too much carbon, then it turns out there's just not quite enough nitrogen for the nitrogen-fixing bacteria to thrive, so you don't actually get enough heat. You don't enter the phases at a rapid rate. So this would be like a really slow compost pile. It takes a really, really long time to ever get off the ground or may never even get off the ground. On the other hand, if you have too much nitrogen, then the nitrogen-fixing bacteria go absolutely crazy, and they end up producing ammonia, which gives the pile this really awful stank, and it also can impact the pH of the pile because ammonia is ionic. So it's really, really important to calculate out the proper amount of carbon and nitrogen when you're putting it into um, when you're putting it into your compost pile. Unfortunately, um, this can get very complicated very quickly especially when you consider that a lot of carbon is not readily available and it takes a little bit longer to break down, whereas nitrogen tends to be readily available. Again, it's in the sky. 
Now, Dr. K, you say, all frustrated and be bothered, how on earth am I supposed to calculate out the amount of nitrogen and carbon in my waste? Well, I mean, one easy way to do this, there's a couple of standing ratios that you can work with, with in terms of things that you can put into your compost pile. For example, the ratio of many veggies and fruits clock in right at the range of 20 to 1 and 30 to 1. Perfect for composting. Also, coffee grounds are perfectly in that range. So huzzah for all you coffee lovers out there, right in that 20 to 1, 30 to 1 range. Um, so that's a good place to start. Veggies, fruits, uh, coffee grounds. If you ever need to give your pile a nitrogen kick, like if it's going a little slow, you can drop a bit of rabbit poo or goat poo or any other ruminant poo that clocks in at like a 5 to 1 ratio. If you need more carbon for whatever reason, cardboard comes in at a whopping 200 to 1 ratio in favor of carbon. So um, as you can see, there's a bit of a science to piecing together um, your compost pile uh, components. But in general, what you could do is you can start off with a bit more carbon. So start off with maybe a little bit of cardboard um, and then keep on adding vegetable matter. So all your fruits and veggies, you can add coffee grounds at this point. And then if it's still going a little slow after a couple of days, add a pinch of rabbit poo and then you should be good on your ratios from there. Now, uh, in addition to the golden ratio, so to speak, the compost needs at least 5% oxygen in order to prevent the bile from going aerobic to anaerobic. Aerobic has oxygen. Anaerobic does not have oxygen. If it goes anaerobic, then it invites a whole different type of bacteria, so-called anaerobic bacteria, who, among other things, produce hydrogen sulfide gas. Hydrogen sulfide gas you may have smelled if you've ever taken a deep sniff of rotten eggs, so that's not great. Um... So while some compost piles that are exposed to air do this naturally because because the air, um, if your pile is starting to smell like eggs, all you need to do for this is to turn it over every so often with a shovel or a spade or something like that, and then you should be good to go. I think, uh, say, once every three days or so is good when the compost is nice and hot, but then once, uh, once like a week or so whenever it hits the second mesophilic era reborn. Um Okay, now a final consideration for your bacterial colony is going to be water. Like everything else, bacteria do need a little bit of liquid courage if they're going to survive and thrive. And as a result, it's really, really important to maintain moisture in your compost pile. The, um, the proper moisture content actually clocks in at about 40 to 60% water by volume, including the material. So a general good rule of thumb that I like is the two-to-one rule. If you're going to add a bucket of compost, add half a bucket of water. This should take into account the already naturally occurring moisture that you have in your material, especially if you're using um, vegetables and fruit. Um, and it gives it a little bit extra to keep it nice and moist. Again, we don't want it to be like a soup, but we certainly don't want it dry. Air on the side of like, okay, we need a little bit more water in there. Okay. Now, if you take all of these things together, what you should do is you should have a nice pile of compost in a couple of weeks that actually should be plenty for you to shovel in your garden for the next growing season. It's actually, it's actually when I think about it, it's really, really cool that so much of gardening, which is just one of the basic tasks that we do as humans, really just comes down to keeping a bunch of bacteria happy, which is, I, I think that's pretty cool. So um, let's recap this. Number one. Composting is the process of decomposing organic matter by bacteria into something that is readily useful for plants. Number two, bacteria make up most of the organisms in a compost pile, and the different eras of compost happen due to different bacterial populations. And finally, number three, bacteria in matured compost 
need a number of chemical and environmental factors taken into account if you want them to do their job and produce something that's really, really useful for plants. It is so cool. I think it's so cool. What a neat thing. It's just, it's so neat in my mind that so many of the things that we do in our everyday lives comes down to keeping the bacteria in that environment happy. I think it's very, very cool. Um, I hope you guys found it interesting and possibly even useful for the next time you try and break out the green thumb next growing season. Um, It is a good reminder, as always, how ubiquitous bacteria are in our everyday lives and how we can actually work with them in certain instances to enhance our day-to-day tasks. We're actually actually going to talk about another example of this next week, Um, but that is all that I have for you guys today. Thank you again to each and every one of you for tuning in and supporting the podcast. I cannot wait to talk with you guys next week. I'm Dr. K, and this has been another episode of Short Stories Bacteria.